A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 1, starting with verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. reading from Peter's first letter. Dear friends, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son, that your Son may glorify you, just as you gave him authority over all people, so that your Son may receive eternal life to all you gave him. Now this is eternal life, that they should know you, the only true God, and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. Now glorify me, Father, with you, with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. They belong to you, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you gave me is from you, 
because the words you gave to me, I have given to them and they accepted them and truly understood that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for the ones you have given me because they are yours and everything of mine is yours and everything of yours is mine and I have been glorified in them. And now I will no longer be in the world, but they are in the world while I am coming to you. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So good to be with you all each week and to do this together and to worship together. Uh, Today is a special Sunday. Um, Today is Ascension Sunday or the Feast of the Ascension. The actual feast was on Thursday. But this is in the church calendar, what they call a movable feast. (laughs) So we can move it to the following Sunday, which we're doing today. And it's part of really three significant Sundays in a row. So we have this uh, Ascension Sunday. Next week is Pentecost Sunday, which is one of the major feasts of the church calendar. And this is where we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh and the birth of the church. And then the following week is Trinity Sunday which I will actually be out of town for Trinity Sunday. And I have a dear friend, Father Christopher Brewer, who is coming up. He serves in Chattanooga, and he is coming up to lead our service that Sunday on Trinity Sunday. And and I'm thankful because Trinity Sunday is a hard one to preach on, and he'll do a great job. (laughs) Um, Today, we hear the story of Jesus' ascension into heaven. And it's likely, given your church upbringing, if you grew up in church, and especially if you didn't grow up in church, that you may not have heard a lot of attention given to the ascension. And this is probably because it feels really abstract compared to a lot of other stories in the Gospels. So we tend to think, when we think of Jesus ascending into heaven, we think of him as leaving, leaving us. That in some sense, as we read the story, we think this is a nice wrap-up to the story of the incarnation, of God stepping into our world. And then at the end, okay, so Jesus did all his work, and now he goes home to heaven. And that's the end ties a nice bow on it. But it gets a bit confusing because we also talk about that Jesus is somehow always with us. Maybe you heard growing up, this Jesus lives in my heart. Okay, so how did he ascend to heaven? How did he leave? And he's also here. We also know that he's promised to return, which means in some sense he's left, but he's coming back. And then we know we have Christ's spirit in us, the Holy Spirit. So you can see why all this is really confusing. (laughs) Jesus left, but he's here. How does that work? Also, much of Jesus' life is so gritty and physical. So we affirm he really died on a cross, that he really rose again. But then here he goes to heaven. What does that even mean? Well, at the beginning of the passage, the disciples ask Jesus an important question. They ask him, when will he restore his kingdom? Basically, when are we going to see everything right? Everything that's wrong in the world, when are we going to see it right? Which is a pretty reasonable question, I think. He just rose from the dead. He showed himself to be Israel's true Messiah, to have authority over everything, including the greatest enemy of all, the thing that's our final enemy for all of us, and that's death itself. So it would be natural for the disciples at this point to go, all right, you showed you conquered death, that you're Lord over everything. So when is stuff going to get sorted out around here? All this icky stuff in the world, when is it going to be made right? And in a sense, we all ask that question today. Lord, when will wrongs be made right? When will we see justice, restoration, healing in fullness? 
if resurrection is real, when will we see everything whole? Think about the emotional roller coaster the disciples have gone on at this point. So they have expected Jesus to conquer Rome and all of their enemies. That was the expectation of a Jewish Messiah. So they're expecting that of him. But instead, he died on a cross, which made it look like he lost, like it's over, like he failed. But then he rose from the dead, which they didn't expect that either. That confounded their expectations. And then they look around after all of that and they see we're still under Roman oppression. We still have enemies even after the resurrection. So when is this thing going to happen? Jesus tells them it's none of their business. (laughs) That they will not know the time or the dates. But, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. The disciples are expecting something like a military kingdom with obvious political power. And as with everything, Jesus flips their expectations. Jesus says, instead, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Now, in the ancient world, when there was a new king, when there was a new kingship that was established, there were these heralds that would go all throughout the territory with this news that we have a new king. I don't know why, but I picture the little guys in Cinderella that go from house to house with the trumpets and the scrolls. Nobody remembers. Is that Cinderella? Yeah, I think it is. Um, But but they have these heralds that would go all throughout the kingdom and proclaim, we have a new king. Well, Jesus is telling his disciples, you are my heralds. Yes, the kingdom has come. It's been inaugurated. And yes, there are so many people who have not heard of it and don't live under the kingship of Jesus. They live according to other kings. But now is the time for the witnesses. It's the time for the heralds. So Christians are witnesses to the fact that there is a different kingdom from the kingdoms of this world. That there is a savior who has risen from the dead. Now notice that we're to be witnesses. Growing up, sometimes in church, we're told that witnessing is a thing we do, which is true on some level, but um, here, the emphasis is on who we are, that we are a people whose lives are oriented not towards the old kingdoms, but in terms of the new kingdom. And then Jesus says, you'll be my heralds in first in the place where you are currently, in Jerusalem, okay? And then it's for the surrounding countryside, for Judea. And then it's for Samaria, which were the despised semi-foreigners who lived right next to them. Finally, they are called as heralds, as witnesses to the ends of the earth. And the entire book of Acts, which this is chapter one we read part of today, the entire book of Acts is the progression of how this begins to happen. God's story and the witness of who God is goes out into all of the world. After Jesus' promise to the disciples, Acts tells us he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. But where did he go? The angels tell the disciples he's been taken into heaven. And this is really tricky because we're tempted to think of heaven and earth as two separate places that are really far away from each other. That's how we've been trained to think. That heaven is this place in the sky where someday we're going to go and sit on clouds and sing worship songs forever. Which actually sounds terrible, doesn't it? (laughs) But in that picture, earth is the slum that we currently live in, right? 
But the pictures that we've been given of heaven and earth are way more a product of our culture than they are of the Bible. In the biblical story, heaven and earth seem to be like two halves of the same whole, two interlocking dimensions. And this means that everything that we see, everything that's visible in our world, has another invisible dimension, invisible reality to it. Heaven is described as the place where God's will is fully done. And the ultimate goal is that his kingdom would come, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does that sound familiar? That's a prayer we pray every single week. So heaven is not a paradise escape. God's will is heaven and earth coming together. Jesus was the first person and actually the first object that is fully at home in heaven and on earth, in God's space, or we might say God's dimension, for lack of better terms, and our space or our dimension. His body is like the anticipation of that day when heaven and earth will come together fully. Jesus' ascension is Jesus going into God's space, God's dimension, But it's not a leaving in the purest sense. Why? Nothing changes about God at the ascension. Nothing changes about who he is, about who God is. What changes is our experience with God. And yet, this opens the door for us to experience God directly in the spirit. When we experience Jesus in the sacraments, in the sacramental moments in our world that is Uh, sacramental or enchanted, when we experience God's space, heaven on earth, we experience that interlocking. When Jesus goes into heaven, he leads us into that space, that new kingdom, that new reality. The ascension of Jesus means at least a few things. I'm going to just list these off here. First, the ascension means Jesus is really the Jewish Messiah. That's important. Daniel chapter 7 prophesies there'll be this figure like the Son of Man who is coming to save the world, and it says he would come on the clouds. This is the image of the Son of Man going up to the clouds to claim authority. This was an important image for the Jewish people of one who would come and rescue and have authority over the world. So this going up to the clouds that's described in Daniel chapter 7 isn't a leaving or a going away. It's a way of claiming authority. So in Acts, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of this, that Jesus is the Son of Man. The same God who delivered Israel is the same God who raised Christ from the dead. Okay, so Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Second, the ascension means Jesus really has all authority. The ascension didn't just speak to the Jews. It also spoke to the Roman world and the empires of the Roman world. There was this crazy process among the Roman emperors at the time where when a Roman emperor would die, there was this thing called apotheosis. And what would happen is there were these witnesses who came under threat of death, and they were usually like nobles or people pretty high up in society, and they had to go outside and look in the sky and say that they saw the Roman emperor's soul ascend into heaven. And when they said, okay, I see it, I see the, of course, they've got like a sword at their back as they're doing it. As they see that thing that happens, they go, oh, he was God. The emperor was God. And you could declare through all the land that the emperor is God. Well, then what that meant is his son, who is the new emperor, is called what? If your dad's God, you are the son of God, God, right? So there's all this propaganda about the emperor is the son of God, the son of the divine. 
So what's different here is with Jesus, we see the Messiah, the Son of Man, we talked about from Daniel 7, ascending into heaven in front of not 11 important people, but 11 ordinary people, not under threat of their life, but people who truly see him. And in apotheosis, the soul would go into heaven, but with Jesus, his actual body goes into heaven. This is upstaging anything the emperor would ever do. So the author of Acts really wants us to see that Jesus is greater than all of the other emperors. Jesus' ascension means all other emperors are a fraud. Then Jesus tells his disciples, go tell the whole world. Go be my herald about this thing, this new kingdom that is so revolutionary. And I think this challenges us to think about who are the Caesars in our world that claim authority. Luke is telling us Jesus is Lord over them too. The things and the people that seem to run the world, Jesus is the ultimate authority even over them. Now, if we are privileged people, which we are in this room, or if you're the authorities that run the world, this is incredibly challenging. And if you're on the underside of power, this is deeply empowering. Whatever has us bound does not have the final word. Okay, so Jesus is really the Jewish Messiah. Jesus has all authority. Third, the ascension means we're not in control. We might ask the question, why does Jesus need to ascend at all? Wouldn't it be easier for everyone if he would just walk on the earth as a human forever? Well, Christ is the heart of creation, the very center of everything. He can't be grasped or controlled or limited or used. You remember after his resurrection when when Mary falls down at his feet and Jesus says, don't cling on to me. He's saying that because he's going, you can't control me or use me, manage me. The ascension points us to that. Jesus is always with us, but never managed by us. Fourth, the ascension means that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We see from the Old Testament all throughout that God is always drawing close to us in a variety of ways. Some of the key ways in the Old Testament are the tabernacle, which is like God's mobile home in the desert. So as as the people are going, God's presence is going with them. We see that in the temple, ultimately the place where heaven and earth meet in the Jewish tradition, where there's forgiveness and healing and all of that is experienced. And then ultimately we see that God draws close in the incarnation of Jesus. God takes on human flesh. And then Jesus' promise that he will come upon us, which is fulfilled at Pentecost. This means Jesus is near to you, is close to you, dwells in you as a Christian, and also at the right hand of the Father at the same time. In the Apostles' Creed, we recite all of these past tense verbs to start with. We'll recite that here in a minute. But Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered. That's all past tense stuff, right? Died, was crucified, dead, buried. He ascended. And then the creed moves to the present tense. He sits. This represents a new era, a shift, one that is past from the revelation about a person, the person Jesus to our time, the time of the church. We live in a world where heaven and earth meet in Jesus. They're not miles apart. And this means that no matter what happens in this world, 
No matter what we see or experience, Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. That is a present reality. This means no matter who appears that they're in charge, no matter what happens in your life or the circumstances, we have a hope that God is at work and God will make things right. So in a sense, yes, this is Jesus leaving, but actually Jesus is becoming closer in a real way. Martin Luther once said that if Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, it means he's in authority everywhere. Eugene Peterson adds to this, that throne relativizes and marginalizes all earthly thrones and all world's politics. The ascension of Jesus prevents us from reducing the rule of Jesus to my heart as his throne. It is that too, but much, much more. Fifth, and the last thing I'll say about the ascension. The ascension means that Jesus takes humanity with him. Our humanity has been taken by Jesus to the Father, to the very heart of the divine life. Rowan Williams writes, The humanity that we all know to be stained, wounded, imprisoned in various ways, this humanity, yours and mine, is still capable of being embraced by God, shot through with God's glory, and received and welcomed in the burning heart of reality itself. Everything about humanity that is broken is also taken to the Father. Now, this is a scandal because we all know humanity is a mess. Each of us is a mess, <laughs> and human beings are a mess. And it doesn't mean that every human longing is good. No, far from it. Jesus doesn't endorse revenge, for example, or hateful language, but he treats every part of us as real everything we experience. He takes it seriously. He feels our pain. He wrestles alongside us. He hurts with us and grieves with us. And he takes that with him to the Father to be transformed. William says, it's as if Jesus says this as he ascends into heaven. This is the humanity I've brought home. It's not a pretty sight. It's not edifying and impressive and heroic. It's just real. Real and needy and confused, and here it is, this complicated humanity brought home to heaven, dropped into the burning heart of God for healing and transformation. I don't know about you, but as I was reading that, so much of this describes me, at least in times of my life, but in some sense always, needy and confused, brought home to heaven, the good news is there's nothing in your life and nothing in the world that's too broken or profane or shameful for God's transforming love. And additionally, this has to lead us to ask where are the places in the world we have thought are too far for the grace of God? Who are the people we've thought to be too far away for the grace of God? The ascension shows us that Jesus takes humanity to the Father to be healed. In our epistle reading, Peter challenges the suffering church and he tells Christians that they can face insult, which probably means something stronger than just criticism, being criticized. But they can face insult. They can, they can face what was probably a loss of social standing. 
Instead, they should consider themselves blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Because of Jesus and your relationship to him, we can count ourselves blessed even when we lose social standing in the world. They're blessed by God because the Spirit lives in them. It's the Holy Spirit who comforts us and reveals the truth of every situation to us and always points the way to the cross. And if we really believe that, if we really believe he has ultimate authority over everything and the the things of the world and social status doesn't run the show, if we really believe God's Spirit is with us, if we really believe he's taken even our broken humanity to the Father, we don't have to be rocked when things change in the world. Our primary concern should be only following in the way of Jesus. We live in such a unique city. Um, I moved here, my my daughter turned 10 years old this this week, and I remember she was two months old when we moved, so we can mark our time here in Nashville (laughs) to her, uh, her age as well. So 10 years ago, we moved here, and I remember from the beginning some things that we'd encounter going, oh, this place is a little different. (laughs) There's <laughs> some different things here about Nashville than what we've experienced. Part of, part of it, not all of it, is, but part of it is this is a city of many people who have moved here following dreams. They're hoping for a big break, to be famous, to be discovered. On a basic level, there's so many who just want to make a living making music or doing what they love. That's appropriate and good. We need artisans in the world. And this is a city of artisans, of artists. But also following our dream, whatever it is, we have to be careful that we're not trapped by the pursuit of status. That is so tempting. It is so, so tempting to find our value in how many people listen to us or follow us on Twitter or see us as important or valuable. Peter is challenging the church to see that the world is a harsh place. Now, we shouldn't compare ourselves to Peter's situation. These people are facing real physical persecution. But regardless, the point he's saying here is that the world is a really hard, harsh place. And we shouldn't look at the world and say that they should define our value. Because this is a world that's not heard the good news. And a world that is not living in the new world. In fact, this is the same world that crucified Jesus. Therefore, its view of status shouldn't matter at all to us. We're already blessed even when we lose status because we're choosing the cross-centered life rather than the ways of the world. In these cases, Peter would say, we have an even more of an opportunity to do good when we lose status in the world than when we get a promotion, which is scandalous. And in our gospel reading, Jesus prays for himself. And he prays for himself as he prepares to undergo the cross. And then he prays for his disciples. He's praying because the collision between this world and its expectations and God's new world is painful. When those two things collide and they come together, it's painful. And in Jesus's prayer, we're caught up between this relationship between the father and the son, a relationship of mutual self-giving and glory sharing. This, if you notice in our gospel reading, so much of it, it's so deep 
and yet it feels so abstract that we can kind of be overwhelmed because he's talking about glorify the son and glorifying the father because I'll glorify you and then they'll glorify me. And you're going, okay, what is going on? But what we're caught up there is this relationship among the Trinity of self-giving love. God within God's self is love and giving and generosity. And that overflows to us in the world. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. God is always the God who is giving and sharing and loving. And this is on display in the relationship among the Trinity. I have to stop there for just a second. I I don't know why, but in those moments, I always think about this scene from Friends, one of the episodes, where Joey is tasked uh, with writing a wedding script. Anybody familiar with this at all? He's giving, he's doing the wedding and he has to write the sermon for the wedding. And he starts off just really strong. And he, he says, loving or marriage is a relationship of giving and sharing and loving and receiving. You know. And you guys know this scene, I guess, already, some of you. And he says that, and, and then he says, and then as we as we give and we share and we love and receive, we too are given and shared and loved, and we receive. And then he goes on, and it's some variation of giving and sharing and loving and receiving over and over again. And, and you get to the point, and his friends are looking around and going, you didn't write anything. That's just four words that you did in the entire thing. But what's funny about that is there's something really deeply Trinitarian in Joey Tribbiani's um, wedding ceremony. <laughs> um, yeah, don't, don't uh, burn me for heresy on this today, but... But there's something deeply Trinitarian in that the life of God is this life of giving and sharing and loving and receiving. (laughs) And then it overflows to us. And that's the whole thing. That's who we are and who we're called to be. One of the things that's so interesting about this passage is Jesus says and seems to say over and over again that the Father is glorified in his coming death, which is the crucifixion. That's shocking. Crucifixion is one of the most humiliating things a human being could endure. But this is God's glory, not the kind of glory and honor sought after by human beings, but the glory in giving his life for the world, in sharing his life with the world. We hear of Jesus' authority, which he says has been given to him by the Father, and we're told eternal life is knowing God and knowing that Jesus and the Father are one. Then in verse 6, he transitions from Jesus praying for himself to praying for his disciples. He's leaving the world, but his disciples will remain. And of course, Jesus is still with us in the Holy Spirit, but he's not here in a limited local sense. He says, my disciples, they know the truth. They know who he is. And now he prays that they would be one as he and the Father are one. Jesus knows there's a lot ahead for the disciples as he goes to his death. And he asks the Father, he calls him Holy Father, to keep his disciples holy, to be set apart from the world. Holy means separated or set apart. They're to be kept apart by the power of God's name. And I think this is so important for us because there is a kind of separation that is necessary for God's people. That the way of the cross will always mean some separation and some suffering because it'll mean that so much of the way that the world defines power and influence and success is not our way. And that's always going to cause tension in our lives. It means we hold worldly status loosely We seek to be witnesses, and we don't get caught up in the games of the world. We seek to be a people of heaven 
and a people of the new world. Frederick Dale Bruner says, the major instrument for the coming of God's kingdom is a church that is kept in the name that God gave to Jesus and so the church that faithfully proclaims Jesus' divinity. There are a few things I hope we hear today in all of this. There's so much with the ascension and this passage in John that's just so deep. But there's a few things I hope we would leave with. First, Jesus is Lord of the world. It's difficult to trust in God's authority when the world around us seems so messed up. Stanley Hauerwas is a theologian, and he's famous for one line. Jesus is Lord, and everything else is, and I won't cuss today, but BS, <laughs> what he says. And the idea there is Jesus is Lord. That's the foundation of everything. When things claim to run our world, we find that we, they often prove hollow. They say they'll quench our thirst for justice and beauty and love, but they fail. The cross, the resurrection, and the ascension proclaim there is something new, a new way to be human in the world, a new way to be and to live, and we are called as witnesses of that new world. Life is hard, and it's difficult, and it's downright impossible on our own to actually be heralds of a new kingdom. But the way of the cross is the way of God's new world, and the Holy Spirit is with us as Christ is interceding for us. And God cares about our pain. Peter says, in in a verse that I haven't talked about yet, but Peter says, cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. We're not alone in our pain. And only God can truly handle our pain. Because of this, we don't have to hold on to worldly status. We don't have to freak out when we lose worldly status. In fact, Peter says we need to resist the devil. He puts these two things together. He says the devil's like a lion out there trying to devour people. Resist that. There are counterfeits in our world that are going to lead you down a different path. Resist all of that. So may we hear today the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, even in a broken world. May we hear the voice of the one who cares for us. May we know his intercession, his love, his compassion in the midst of pain. And may our identity as witnesses to that reign come from that place that we know we're loved and he cares for us. May we look for God's voice and God's presence in the marginalized. May we know that there is no place that's too far gone May we know the God of grace and thereby know eternal life. Amen.